If you have a Bible, you can turn in the Old Testament to Proverbs chapter 14. The reading of God's Word comes from Proverbs chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Lend your attention, this is God's own Word. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. By the mouth of a fool comes a rod for his back, but the lips of the wise will preserve them. When there are no oxen, the manger is clean. But abundant crops come by the strength of the ox. A faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing on the reading and the preaching of his word. Now Lord, we rejoice to uh, call you our God and our Father. Uh, We rejoice at the plain and true testimony uh, that we have received from uh, faithful witnesses, Lord, as recorded in your word, uh, that those called by uh, the beloved Son uh, were sent out and uh, indeed bore true witness, and we have believed their testimony. And it is a wonder, Lord, that generation after generation, uh, you build your house, uh, you raise up uh, those who believe. Uh, by the wonderful working of your great grace. And so we pray, Lord, that you would establish us as those who walk in uprightness, who fear you as you continue your work of renovation, as you continue to showcase your great grace and mercy to this sad and fallen world. And pray now that as we receive from your word this repository of wisdom, uh, that you would prepare our hearts, uh, that you would Uh, Make us teachable, malleable, uh, eager to uh, heed the instruction which comes to us, eager eager to behold our King and to follow after Him by the power of the Spirit and through the exercise of faith. Uh, Lord, do these things as we lend our hearts and minds even now to the hearing of Your Word and um, to the heeding of uh, Your servant. And we pray, Father, that uh, You would be pleased to bless this without your blessing, Lord, our labors are in vain. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. You can turn in the hymnal to page 973 where you can find the relevant shorter catechism questions. Uh, We spend one more week in the seventh commandment. I'll read Exodus 20, verse 14 briefly. Lend your attention. This is God's word. You shall not commit adultery. And thus ends God's word. And then once more, we'll uh, take up 71 and 72. Question 71 is, what is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. What is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. 
And this is the final week in the seventh commandment. Uh, last week, we looked at the practical call that scripture uh, lays upon us um, concerning the cultivation of chastity, of purity, as that which truly reflects uh, the purity of our king, his pure heart, and as that which is a discharge of our duty uh, to love one another, uh, to view one another as God views us, and uh, not uh, in the beastly tendency of our heart to devalue and demean one another. And so we examined how Scripture calls us to take care of both what we look at and how we look at things, uh, how we present ourselves, and how we speak as those who have been set apart, consecrated, uh, redeemed from death and all of its defilement. This week, I wanted to close by examining how the seventh commandment calls us to examine our gifts and callings with regard to the marriage state. That is, either as married with specific duties which come to us from the marriage state or as single, either permanently called to remain single for the entirety of life or temporarily called to exist in a state of singleness in dependence upon God for his provision in that call. There's a number of duties and prohibitions that the larger catechism draws attention to in this particular area. For example, some of them might surprise you. Uh, the seventh commandment requires conjugal love, cohabitation, and a diligent labor in our callings. It requires marriage by those who do not have the gift of continency. It prohibits entangling vows of single life. It prohibits the undue delay of marriage. It prohibits the forbidding of lawful marriage. I don't know if that's where your mind goes when you hear the simple words, thou shall not commit adultery. <laughs> Chances are those sorts of applications and extensions are not near at hand. I would say. But interestingly, Paul picks up a number of these issues in the light of a passage that we looked at just last week. If you have a Bible, we're going to spend a majority of our time in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul deals with God's call upon us either in the marriage state or God's call upon us as single. So I want to break our considerations down under two headings. The first is, in marriage, we're called to give the self to an other in humility and love. We are called to give the self to another in humility and love. This is the call that God has upon you in the state of marriage, if you are in the state of marriage. The second heading is, we are called to examine our gifts and callings with regard to singleness. With regard to singleness. So first, the marriage state, but I'll read 
the first five verses here of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to begin. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's an interesting passage. It seems what's going on here is that there are certain wrong ideas that have gained ascendancy in the church at Corinth, a number of them concerning either an application about the body in a sinful manner, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where a number of people were concluding it doesn't matter what we do with our body because we're saved in our souls. The other side of the coin seems to be this severity towards the body, the denying of God's good gifts in certain ways because of a view of the supremacy of the soul. It's interesting that they wrote to Paul about these things and they sought his advice. And even that's worth pausing over. It's remarkably earthy, isn't it? The matters that Paul picks up here. He takes us into a portion of life that is delicate, but one which is covered by God's word. Once more, we're struck by the extensiveness of God's wisdom, the comprehensiveness of the instruction that we see and receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does Paul address here? The first thing to note is that it's interesting that this conversation comes on the heels of chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul says that Christ has spared no expense to redeem you, to take you as his special position, to take you as his beloved, indeed the Father's beloved, the object of his eternal love demonstrated in the fullness of time in the Lord Jesus Christ shedding his blood to purchase you. So glorify God in your bodies, he says. The Spirit dwells in you. Christ has purchased you. You belong to the Father. Now go be a good husband. Go be a good wife, he says. That's rather counterintuitive, especially given what the Corinthians are probably wrestling with in terms of this idea of remaining physically apart in marriage as being some sort of logical extension of the importance of the soul in salvation. Paul says, no, 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 <laughs> don't remain apart. This is how you glorify God with your bodies, by fulfilling your duty 
in marriage. That's actually the word that Paul uses in verse 3. The word that's translated there, conjugal rights, is a rare word. It means what is owed. It says give what you owe. Give what you're called to give. Give her her due. Now again, according to whom is the answer? Who determines that I owe this to her? We might say, well, you determine that when you vowed to do that. You took vows before God and before man that you were going to give yourself in selfless love to this woman, that you were going to give yourself in selfless love to this man. So there's a sense in which Paul is just saying, look, you vowed to do this, now do it. But there's another sense in which this is just an extension of the principle that we saw at the end of chapter 6. You owe this because you belong to God. And God says that this is what you owe. There's a certain double beholdenness, isn't there, in marriage? The reason that I am obligated to my wife is strengthened and enforced by the fact that I am obligated unto my God. There's a reason that he is so very present in the wedding ceremony. This double obligation opens up. It's striking to hear the similarity of language. He says, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price at the end of chapter 6. But then he goes on to say that, husbands, you're not your own. You belong to your wife. Wives, you're not your own. You belong to your husband. Those two things are set up in peril. They're not in conflict there. How often do we put those things in conflict? How often is family sacrificed at the altar of service to God? How often is cruelty what we use to coerce into obedience? That's conflict. Ministers, this is a particularly acute call, is it not? Elders, this is a particularly acute temptation, is it not? That if somebody's going to take it in the neck, it's going to be the family. God says it's not so. These two things aren't in tension. Paul lays that out for Timothy. It says that the qualification for you to serve in the household of God is on display in a Christian service of your family. Notice how Paul approaches this subject, though, which is rather delicate. We might think him somewhat crass, but he says that it's your duty. It's your duty to draw near in physical intimacy. We recoil from that a little bit. It's like, oh, it sounds like a clash of concepts there. Duty and intimacy, how can those two things be reconciled? But mark its brilliance. Mark the brilliance of this. You don't look like you're ready to mark something. You look like you're about to fall. So mark the brilliance of this. Get ready. I'm going to blow your minds. Well, the word of God is going to blow our minds. Isn't one of the greatest dangers in our marriages and many other things besides our relentless insistence upon rights and privileges to the neglect of responsibilities and duties? You don't look like your minds are blown. I trust that it will blow your mind later. <laughs> 
Mark if that isn't a relentless tendency. I have the right to a submissive wife. I have the right to a tender husband. I have the right to dutiful children. And you fixate on that. And then what happens when you don't get it? It isn't love, beloved, which issues forth. It isn't patience, which issues forth. It's not a tender heart, which issues forth. It's not compassion, which issues forth. It's indignation, because you think you deserve something. It's really important to remember that we don't deserve anything except for God's wrath in the strictest sense. That's a humbling starting point, isn't it? That seems to reframe the entirety of what we've received in actuality, doesn't it? The brilliance of this starting point is that as he exhorts each to fixate not upon what they're owed, but what they owe, both receive what they're owed. Am I talking at too high concept a level here? I got in trouble for that a lot in seminary. They're like, you need to illustrate more. I said, well, then I'm going to read Tolstoy. <laughs> the idea here is that as each contend themselves, content themselves with what God calls them to do, naming the giving of oneself in love to the other, both receive rights and privileges that are willingly yielded and not coerced. There's a beauty to that. If duties are freely and joyfully rendered as worship under the one who has purchased us, then each receives a joyful and free rendering of what they're due, beloved. I assure you it is the only way to harmony in marriages. Paul is seeking here to correct a particularly wrong-headed notion that it was extra holy to refrain from physical intimacy in marriage. And Paul says the opposite. He says, don't refrain from physical intimacy in marriage. It's striking that it's a rather practical approach to the issue, intimacy. Again, we can say that physical intimacy within marriage has multiple purposes, but we would be foolish to deny that as one of its purposes, it has as guarding from temptation. That's what he says here, right? The reasoning is plain. It's not the hungry who steal. I'm sorry, it's the hungry who steal, not the well-fed. I blew the illustration. That's why I never illustrated in <laughs> seminary. I was, I was getting kicked out. You gotta illustrate, man. I was like, well, what if I keep doing it wrong? <laughs> They're like, all right, don't illustrate. <laughs> it's the hungry who steal, not the well-fed. We can mark these other purposes. And as we've had the opportunity, we reflected upon Song of Songs and the good gift of that sort of delight. We reflected upon Proverbs 5 and the good gift. These aren't competing images. They're layers of God's wisdom in the multifaceted provision that he has given us. We'd be foolish not to regard God's purpose of guarding against physical temptation 
in coming together in marriage, in physical intimacy. So one thing we must say to Christian husbands and wives is make sure that you're eating regularly. It's a metaphor that comes to us from Scripture. I'm not making it. That's not a crass metaphor. Look at Song of Songs. It's full of culinary imagery, fruit, spices. There's a loveliness to it, but the plain extension of the metaphor is if you're going to be healthy, you have to eat. There's no way to give up food and be healthy. There's no way to prescribe the exact frequency of eating. Interestingly, Martin Luther recommended three times a week. That's Martin Luther. You take it up with him. Hmm? (laughs) But the metaphor itself is informative. It has to be somewhat regular because that's the nature of food. (laughs) But it's not just that we're bodies, animals, as it were. The Corinthians thought far too highly of themselves. Paul here humbles them. We oftentimes think far too highly of ourselves. But there is a loveliness to the marriage institution which Paul begins to draw attention to. It's not just for the intimacy of bodies that God has given this marriage relationship. It's for communion together with God. That's what he says. He says, perhaps, perhaps, refrain for a season as you devote yourselves to prayer. That's communion of a different kind. It's an intimacy of a different kind, one that you both as co-heirs enter into together. It's a cultivation of that richer level of the marriage relationship, of calling upon God together. And note the dignity that both share. We talk about Ephesians 5 a lot when it comes to the relationship of husbands and wives, and rightfully so, but notice that there's a mutual agreement to this. There's a shared dignity in the marriage relationship. This is not dictatorial. Both have authority and rights in this regard. It whiffs very much of what Peter instructs husbands regarding their wives as co-heirs of the grace of life. It's true we may have different responsibilities and roles, but the shared dignity of standing on equal footing before the Lord God as co-heirs and the Lord Jesus Christ informs all of our dealings with one another. Honor, respect, love, and care as we stand before our God as those who have been bought with a price, beloved. And I assure you, it was the same price. Nothing less than the blood of Christ. The richness of the marriage relationship is hinted at here. The requirement in the marriage relationship to give ourselves to the other in humility and selflessness, not as something God tolerates, It is something God calls us to in a multi-layered enjoyment of good. But what if you're not married? (laughs) Is the seventh commandment obsessed with married people? Well, partly. I mean, adultery assumes marriage. But there is an extension that Paul continues to make with reference to singleness. He goes on in verse 6. 
through verse 9. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. These are some striking verses, aren't they? I mean, that Paul can say that I wish all were as myself. I mean, just most obviously, there is nothing deficient about the state of singleness inherently. There's nothing. Now, it's rather shocking. I mean, especially shocking if you read the Old Testament and Israel's history, the idea of being fruitless, the idea of not producing offspring. These things were dreadful to consider. So for Paul to say, I wish that all were as I am, namely single. We got to make sense of that. Like, we can't just sweep that under the rug. Like, he's wishing something on everyone. Here, he sees a good in this that you don't have if you're not single. Again, we do well to make sure we hear he's not disparaging marriage. He's not disparaging the family. These are God's ordinances that are pronounced good from the beginning, which we've already seen have layer upon layer of loveliness to them. But he's saying something here. Isn't he? I mean, he goes so far as to use creation language. This gets a little bit dicey. It is good for them to remain single. Wait a minute. That sounds suspiciously like the opposite of Genesis 2. That it is not good for the man to be alone. Just feel the te- just feel that something has changed, beloved. Something remarkable has changed. If he can say it is good to remain single, what has changed? The end of all things have come upon us. That's what's changed. The time is short, he's going to go on to say. He's like, the end is here. The Lord Jesus Christ has come. It's the last chapter of human history. The Son of God has appeared. He has died in the stead of sinners. God's universal purpose is in saving the nations. God regenerating hearts from every tribe and tongue and nation. The Son of Man taking his seat at the right hand. The fact that he's coming back. The fact that the present distress that they're undergoing then and there in Corinth, whether it's famine or earthquake related, Paul sees as reverberations of the the last day already dawning. He says, the time is near at hand, beloved, for Christ to return. Did he get it wrong? It was 2,000 years ago. What did he miss? No, he didn't miss. This is the last day. The wonder of the gospel going forth, bringing forth life from dead hearts, calling people unto this reality that is now made known the world over, that's a massive change. Again, we take it for granted because we 
grew up in the church. We live in the church age. The church age is well underway. But let's not miss the apocalyptic dimensions of that. It puts at least a little bit of urgency into our lives. When otherwise, left to ourselves, we feel pretty complacent, don't we? Things, we almost sound like the naysayers in Second Peter. It's like, that, things are pretty much the same as they've always been. Are things ever really, one day is pretty much like the next. It's like, I'm, I mean, I go to church and they tell me things are different and so I believe them because my pastor preached a really good sermon about faith in the morning. And so I believe the word of God. But in terms of actually feeling the nearness of the end, it's the only context that can make sense of such dramatic statements, such as it's good to be single, that a different order has introduced itself, one that doesn't upend the creation order, but one that is different beloved, with the end drawing near. Now note what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say it's good that you remain single so that you can work on your hobbies. It's good that you can remain single because I know you've always wanted to go to Bordeaux. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> it's good to remain single because you've got a lot of professional accomplishments that are on the horizon that kids would just get in the way of, quite frankly. Spouses would get in the way of. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says that it's good for you to remain single because such lends itself to an unbroken devotion unto the Lord. He's very practical in this. Parents can attest to this. Anyone who's married can attest to this. They're just practical matters that you have to attend to when you enter that state. Is it good? Yes. Does it come with practical demands? Absolutely. And they multiply with children in the next stage. There's a very practical argument that he is making here. He flushes this out. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. The reason it's a gift to be single here is that it frees up Time to serve. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? It frees you up to serve. That's what he's saying here. Because you too are not your own. Just because you don't belong to a husband or belong to a wife, you still belong to the one who purchased you. And those practical considerations which weigh upon a husband, which weigh upon a wife, which weigh upon a mother, which weigh upon a father, they don't rest upon your shoulders. And so there is a certain clarity with which you can ask, how do I serve the one who bought me with a price? And his answer is, serve my body. 
And that becomes plain when we hear Paul say that singleness is a gift. He's going to go on in chapter 12 to talk about gifts and why God gives gifts. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. If singleness is a gift and God has given you that gift, what is the gift for? It's for the body, beloved. So you can ask yourself, what season does the Lord have me in? Oftentimes we find ourselves in a season and because of our relentlessly discontent hearts, we're longing for the next season. Single, I want to get married. Married, I want to have kids. Little kids, I can't wait until they're grown. Grown kids, I just want them out of the house and so on and so forth. Maybe we're the problem, beloved. (laughs) Maybe joy isn't to be had in circumstances. Maybe that relentless thirst for the next season is like, oh, I don't know, what's a good image? Trying to catch the wind? (laughs) That's a biblical image. (laughs) He says, examine the season that you're in and serve the Lord in that season because the time is short. The seasons are from him. If you're single... Serve the Lord. You don't have kids? Serve the Lord. You got kids? Just try to make it. I mean, really, basically, just hang in there. But then you're not going to have kids that are small anymore. You're going to have more margin to serve the Lord. But you see the same question that's being asked. I'm not my own. That's like the most anti-American thing you could say. Don't tread on me. No, look, you're not your own. That's our mantra. I'm not my own. I'm bought with a price. It is not a little price. And it comes with new ownership. Being transferred out of one domination and placed in a reign of life. That's the question for all of us to be asking. So you can see how this frames that temporary call to singleness, that permanent call into singleness under this vertical coordinate of I belong to another. Man, I've gone long. <laughs> it's all right. He does want you to differentiate between a temporary and a permanent call to singleness. That's what he envisions here. If you're single, then he's called you to be single for right now. But that is different from having the gift of permanent singleness. He goes on to say that you don't have the right to remain single if you don't have the gift of singleness. That's a striking thing to say. Now, I want to point out, because I feel like the Roman Catholics are coming at us a lot these days, I'd like to point out to my Roman Catholic friends, whom I love, that they've gotten this very wrong, Mm. and it has caused no small harm. Mm. I love my Roman Catholic friends. I love them. 
but they are very wrong. You cannot command someone who's not called to be single to remain single. If you don't have self-control, if you are incontinent, you must marry. Those priests should marry. They got this wrong. And it's super harmful. The wisdom of God is superior to the wisdom of man. It just is. You want to get married? Get married, Paul says. There's a couple of things that are implied in this. As long as he's called you to singleness, he's going to supply you with the grace to exist in that state. Seek it. The second implication is that elsewhere in Scripture, a godly spouse is called a gift, so you can seek that gift from his hand. Another extension of Scripture is that as we heard the exposition of these Ten Commandments with reference to taking care of physical life, working hard, it's good to know that as we heed God's word in those areas, a certain loveliness of life comes about. So the encouragement to single folks that I want to give is like, take care of yourself. Seek the Lord's gift. Pray for the gift that you desire and exercise. You'll feel better. It'll keep that depression at bay. Present yourself respectably. Look nice. Work hard. Cultivate interests. None of those things are going to gain you acceptance with God, but they're not going to hurt as you look for a spouse. But at the end of the day, those who are permanently single, those who are temporarily single, those who are married, learn how to delight in the love which is like no other from the king who is like no other. Because unless one learns to take satisfaction in that, one's ever only going to be looking for satisfaction in that which cannot satisfy, whether it's circumstances or a person or persons in the form of children. Until one learns to delight in the love of this otherworldly king, who has redeemed you at the cost of his life, making known an otherworldly love of the Father until that is the locus of your delight, you're not going to find satisfaction in anything else because nothing else can satisfy. The Lord Jesus Christ says, greater love has no man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friends. The Lord calls us friends he calls us family. He calls us beloved. And he has demonstrated this love in a supreme and public display that is undeniable. Christian, that's the wellspring of your delight, your satisfaction. May it sustain you in whatever earthly state the Lord has called you to. Let's pray. Our great God, we do give you thanks for your wisdom. You are the arranger and author of all seasons, Lord. Teach us, Father, to receive these things from your hand. 
Teach us to live in the light of your word as it is uh, such a pure and extensive light, O oh Lord. And teach us to marvel at the love that you've poured out in Jesus Christ. We ask in Christ's name, amen.